Amen. Thank you, Linda, for helping us to worship in that way. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, as we continue through the book of Acts, we're up to the conversion of Saul today. Probably the most famous uh, conversion in Christian history. I inspired many songs, including one of my favorites, Hank Williams, I Saw the Light, right? You know that one? Um, it's found its way in our vernacular. Even people who are not familiar with the conversion of Saul use expressions from this story that I was blinded by the light. I had a Damascus Road experience. Uh, Saul's conversion is indeed something uh, that has influenced us and continues to influence us to this day. And so today, as we come to Acts chapter 9, I just want to point out a couple of quick things for us. I know the sermons and acts have been a little bit longer because there's so much going on, and many of you have made me aware of those longer sermons, so thank you so much for your calls and texts and emails and comments. Uh, they're duly noted. Uh, but today, I'm just going to have two quick questions about the text and then two quick points, and I really want us to spend some time enjoying communion with the risen Lord, that same one who confronted Saul on the Damascus Road. Uh, we're able to fellowship and commune with him this morning. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 9. Let me pray for us, and then we'll just look at two quick questions and two quick points about this passage of Scripture. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for preserving this account of Saul's conversion. And I pray that you would use it today to give us greater understanding of who you are and who we are. I pray that you would use this account to give us great hope that you are at work in the world today. And that we would have great hope in your saving work. And I pray that you would use the preaching of your word and also as we come to the table that you would use it to draw us closer to yourself and to draw us closer to one another as we spend time in your word and at the table. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, two quick questions, two quick points, all right? I'll talk faster, you write faster, all right? I'm just kidding. Two quick questions. The first question I think we need to ask when we come to this text, when we look at something like the conversion of Saul, is we have to ask the question, is conversion necessary? Is conversion necessary? You know, if you listen to the voices in our culture today, conversion is a controversial thing, right? There are those outside the church that feel like calling for conversion is sort of narrow-minded. It's sort of primitive, right? It's so last millennium to ask people to convert to your religion as if you have the only truth or the only way that there is to go. And so some folks outside the church really question this need for conversion. But I think if we're going to be honest with ourselves... When we talk about conversion inside the church, we we get nervous inside the church as well. And so let's just name that up front. We get nervous as well. And yes, part of it is because of the views of the culture toward conversion, right? It can have a, a negative view. And so we're sort of nervous when we talk about conversion. But let's be honest, a little closer to home. Many times we're nervous about talking about conversion inside the church Because we're worried that maybe we haven't been converted. 
We think I go to church, but, you know, have I been converted? Am I saying, is, is conversion really something that's necessary? Is it something that I have to have? I haven't had an experience like the Apostle Paul talks about here. Does that mean that I'm not saved? And so I just want to answer this question. Is conversion necessary? Is that something we have to talk about? Yes, it is. And the reason why is because the Lord Jesus himself in Matthew 18 and verse 3 tells us, unless you are converted, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So the answer to that question, is conversion necessary? Yes, Matthew 18, 3, right? It is necessary if we're going to see the kingdom of heaven. Now we get nervous. I haven't had an experience like Paul has. And that leads us to the second question. Does Christian conversion always look like this? This account in Acts 9 where we read about uh, the Apostle Paul. And forgive me, I go back and forth as I've practiced. I go back and forth between calling Paul and Saul. Just so you know, they're the same person, okay? His name was Saul and he has such a dramatic conversion. His name is changed to Paul, okay? And that's sort of the, the Hellenized version of his name. And so when I say Saul or Paul is the same person, so forgive me for that. But the question, does Christian conversion always look like this one that we see with the conversion of Saul? And I think the answer to that question, not as clear, I think we have to say yes and no. Yes and no. Well, and, and what do I mean by yes and no? Well, I would say no, that Christian conversion is not always this dramatic in the specifics that we see here, right? Being blinded by a light, going three days blind, hearing an audible voice with God speaking our name audibly in whatever language it is that we speak. Not all Christian conversion is this dramatic. Think about just last week, right? We were in Acts chapter 8. Philip in the Ethiopian. The Ethiopian is just riding down the road in a chariot, reading a scroll of Isaiah. Somebody comes up, Philip, and runs beside him and says, do you understand what you're reading? He says, no, how can I unless somebody guides me? He invites Philip up, they read the scripture, and he says, I believe that Jesus, I believe the good news about Jesus. What would prevent me from being baptized, right? And so Philip baptizes him, right? There's no bright light. There's no being blinded. A lot of the dramatic things that we see here are not necessary, yet very clearly the Ethiopian eunuch is converted. And so, no, not all Christian conversions look like this. They're not all this dramatic in the specifics that we see here. I think what we see here is that God intervened in a special way because Saul was God's special instrument. So God called him in a special way. Much like the prophets of old, uh, Saul was called because God had a very special purpose for him, and a very special job in his life. But not all Christian conversion is like this in the dramatic details that we read here. However, I would say, yes, there are aspects of Christian conversion that do look like this, right? There are some things that we're to learn from this. Like Saul, we all have to be confronted with the truth that Jesus rose from the dead. Like Saul, we all have to embrace him by faith. We all have to turn from old ways, and there's a dramatic change in Saul as he becomes Paul, right? We all have to turn from old ways to newness of life as a part of the church, as a part of the community of those who are following Jesus. I'll talk about that more in a second. So, no, I don't think all Christian conversion looks exactly like this in all the dramatic detail, 
See, Acts 8, Philip of the Ethiopian Union. But yes, we all have an encounter with Christ where our life is changed. In fact, Paul even writes about this in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 16. This will be our benediction this morning at the end. We'll hear the testimony of the Apostle Paul. And he says there, I was shown mercy so that in me the worst of sinners... The worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. So there are things that we learn from the conversion of Saul that are an example for us as Christians, right? Namely, Jesus' unlimited patience, his kindness, his mercy. So there are things we learn from this story. So those are the two quick questions, right? Moving on along, doing well, right? Let's look at two quick points. Two quick points. The first point, uh, as I look at this story and think, what's the original audience taking away from this? This is what I think they would take away. The main thing, the big thing, would be this. Saul hated Christianity. And God converted him to Christianity. So we have hope that God can change anyone. Saul hated Christianity. Let's look at that. Think about what we've already seen. At the end of Acts 7, in verse 58, we saw that he was there at the stoning of Stephen, that people were placing their cloaks at his feet when Stephen, the first deacon, was being killed. And and, and in chapter 8, in verse 1, we see Saul's there giving his approval to Stephen's death. And shortly after Stephen dies, it's Saul, in chapter 8, in verse 3, where we see Saul beginning to destroy the church arresting men and women, dragging them out of their homes, throwing them into jail because he hates this, what in his mind is a perversion of what God has said in the Old Testament. And so he is zealous in his persecution of the church. In fact, in chapter in Acts chapter 8 and verse 3, we see Saul began to destroy the church. He wanted to destroy Christianity. And here at the beginning of this text, in Acts 9 and verse 1, we see that Saul was still, so he's been doing this, but he continues to breathe out murderous threats against those who follow Jesus. He's threatening to kill them, right? And in this rage that he's in, he goes to the high priest, we see in verse 2, and asks for letters to the synagogues in Damascus for him to travel what's in a a totally different country to arrest people who are turning to Jesus and bring them back so that they can be uh, tried, so that they can be imprisoned, right? And so Saul hates Christianity. He wants to destroy it. Later on, he will write, he will talk about this in Acts 26 and verse 11. And Paul describes it this way. He says, in my obsession against them. I went to foreign cities to persecute them. The New American Standard, if you have it, it says he was furiously enraged. The ESV said he had a raging fury. I mean, Damascus is 150 miles from Jerusalem, a week or a 10-day trip for him to take. He must have really been opposed if he's going to hunt people down that far away and invest that much time and energy. Saul hated Christianity, wanted to destroy the church. Now, you might say, okay, so what? He hated Christianity, God converted him, so what? Let's think about the implications of that. First, if God can convert Saul, God can convert anybody, right? Nobody is too bad or too hostile or too...
are gone. If God converted Saul, listen, God can change you. He can change your heart. Nobody's too far gone. No heart is too hard toward the truths of Christianity. So there's great hope for us that sometimes we believe the lie. Sometimes people, when they talk to me, they say, you know, I would love to come to your church. I would love to follow Jesus. But you don't know the things that I've done. And I have to say, yeah, I, I don't know the things that you've done. <laughs> but let me tell you about this guy named Saul. He killed people. He was trying to stamp out Christianity. He was trying to destroy the church. And that wasn't enough to, to keep God from saving him, to keep him from becoming a part of the church, to keep him from embracing Jesus. So whatever it is that you've done, this guy murdered people. He threw people in jail. He opposed Christianity. No heart is too hard. No one is too far away. God can change you. God can accept you. You can be a part of the family of God if this guy can be a part of the family of God, right? In fact, that's what people usually say, well, I hadn't killed anybody. <laughs> well, this guy had killed people, and he's adopted into the family of God. Second, if you have been converted, if you do follow yourself, if you do consider yourself a follower of Jesus, then I think this, this account shows us this, that God can change anybody. So we should have more confidence in sharing our faith. We should pray more boldly for God to move and to save people and to draw people to himself, even if they are outwardly very hostile to Christianity. So if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, I would ask you, what is it that prevents you from following him? Don't let it be the past things that you have done. As we sang this morning, uh, his, his mercy's more, it's bigger than any of the things that we have done. But if you're here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus... Who are you praying for that they would be converted? Who are you sharing with? You know, we're coming up on the holidays. We're going to spend time with family. We're going to be around people that we're not always around. Who is it that you long to see come to Jesus? A lot of times when we make it about family, about going home for Thanksgiving, or we talk about people we're going to see, our brothers and sisters, my mom, my dad, my child, right, our children, a lot of times when I start talking about that, people will say to me, oh, no, you don't know my dad. You don't know this person. They would never embrace Christianity. They're just so turned off. They're so jaded. They're so, they've been burned by the church. And listen, all those things may be true. But let me ask you this question. Just suppose, just imagine, do this thought experiment with me. Imagine that we found Saul as he was leaving Jerusalem, Right? in this furious rage, going to oppress, persecute, try to destroy the church. Let's say we, we caught him leaving Jerusalem, and we said to him, Saul, within three days of your getting to Damascus, you're going to be preaching that Jesus is the Son of God. <laughs> what do you think he would have said? <laughs> no way, not me. I'm going there to kill those people. I'm going there to hunt them down. I'm going there to destroy this. He was so hostile and so hardened in his heart. Yet, you can read in verse 20 that within three days of arriving in Damascus, he is preaching that Jesus is the Son of God. There's such a dramatic change in his life. God can change people like that. God can melt the hardest heart. Saul was not seeking to be a Christian. He was persecuting Christians. 
Saul didn't want to join the church. He wanted to destroy the church. Saul was not seeking Jesus, but Jesus in his grace and his mercy was seeking Saul. And God turned a murderer into a missionary. He turned a persecutor of the church into a pastor of the church. And that means that there is hope for us and for our loved ones who are not seeking Jesus. Do we pray for people who are opposed to Jesus or do we just see them as our enemies? Well, what about you and your heart? Do you just try to marginalize them and avoid them before they marginalize and, and, and you know, say things about our faith? Or do we move toward them, humbly asking God to move in their hearts? I believe in the church that, that, that we play scared sometimes, that we live in fear. And listen, I don't think that there ought to be an arrogance or a pride to us. I don't want that. But there ought to be a humble confidence that God can change anybody's heart, that nobody's too far from God. Paul himself later will write in Romans 8 and verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? So let's not live in fear and let's ask God to move in great boldness that he would come and convert people and change them for his glory and for our good. So that's one point, right? Saul hated Christianity, God converts him and so we can have great hope. Second quick point, those converted to Christ become connected to Christ and to one another. Those converted to Christ become connected to Christ and to one another. Jesus says something remarkable in this passage. Do you see what he says when he confronts Saul? Look in verse 4. We're told Saul fell to the ground and he heard a voice say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, I can imagine Saul answering that question and saying, well, uh, sir, I don't know who you are, because he's about to say, who are you, Lord? You know, I don't know who you are, but I wasn't really coming here to persecute you, right? Old bright one <laughs> who is glorious, right? I'm going to persecute these Christians. Who are you, right? I'm not here to persecute you. I'm here to persecute these other people. And, of course, Jesus says... I am Jesus, who is he? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Do you see what's going on there? Those converted to Christ become connected to Christ, right? And those converted to Christ are so connected to Christ that Jesus sees persecuting his followers as the same thing as persecuting him, what we have an introduction here to is this idea of our union with Christ, that we're connected to him, that we're attached to him. And the Bible uses a lot of images to, to, to teach us this truth. Remember Jesus himself in John 15 and verse 5 says, I'm the vine, you're the branches, right? The vine is connect, the branches are connected to the vine, right? I'm the vine, you're the branches. If anyone remains in me and I in him, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That image of vine and branches is an image of our union with Christ. 1 Peter 2 talks about Jesus being the foundation and that we're living stones built on this cornerstone that is Jesus, that we're attached to him, that we're connected to him. 
Ephesians 5, when it talks about marriage, says that marriage ultimately points to the union that's between Christ and his bride, which is the church. And in 1 Corinthians 12, we're told that Jesus is the head and we are his body. We're members of the body with Christ as our head. And so Augustine, back in the 4th century, when he looks at this passage, well, here's what he writes. But he says, the head in heaven is crying out on behalf of his body on earth. You see, those who are, con- those who are converted to Christ become connected to Christ. And there's this union with Christ. And you may say, well, so what? what? What does that matter? Well, let me give you a couple of things. First, more theological, Right? All of the benefits that we get from being converted come through our union with Christ, right? We're justified. We have a right standing with God because we're united to Christ and he has a perfect record. Our adoption into the family of God, that comes because we're united to Christ and we're his brothers and sisters, so we're adopted into his family. Our sanctification, right, comes as we are united to Christ and as we die more and more and as Christ lives more and more in us, as we're more and more connected, we are more and more sanctified. Our glorification comes because just as Christ was raised, as we sang, what a foretaste of our deliverance, right? That just as Christ was raised, we will be raised from the dead. It's because we're connected to Christ that we're raised in him. All the benefits of salvation come from our union in Christ. You may say, okay, thank you for the theological lesson. That's great. Maybe your heart soars with that. I hope that it does. But it's an acquired taste. You may not yet. That's okay. Keep meditating on those things. Let me make it really, really practical, our union with Christ. Maybe your heart's like mine. And sometimes when things don't go the way that I want them to go, the way that I planned for them to go, the way that I had hoped they would go, I think to myself, God, you just really don't care because you didn't do this thing that I wanted you to do. Maybe you were just distracted, you were off handling something in the Middle East somewhere, or maybe you knew and you just deliberately didn't do what I wanted you to do. You you just don't care about me. Listen, we can't look at this truth about union with Christ and think Jesus doesn't care about us. He is so connected to his people that when we weep, he weeps. That when you persecute us, you persecute him. And there is nothing that we experience that he hasn't already faced before and that he doesn't feel as we experience it because we're so connected to him and unified with him. So we, we, can't, say, we can't say Jesus doesn't care because of our union with Christ and our being a part of him. We have to say, I don't know why you allowed this to happen, but I know you're using it for my good. I know it's not going to be wasted I know you're using it to accomplish things that you want to accomplish. Maybe that I may not ever see, but I have faith that you are good and that you're in control. I don't like what you're doing. I think it's okay to say that. I don't like this thing that you're doing, but I know you're using it to make me look more like Jesus, that I would be more conformed, that I would be more united with him. That's an implication of it. Notice that those converted to Christ become connected to Christ, but also... We become more connected to one another. We become more connected to one another. Do you see what happens there? Verse 17. 
as Paul is blind, he's fasting, he's praying, Ananias comes to him in verse 17. He went to the house and entered it. He placed his hands on Saul and he said, Brother Saul. Brother Saul. This man who's been persecuting the church. This man who, who came to, to put believers in jail. He refers to him as a brother. Are you kidding me? <laughs> This enemy of the church is welcomed as a brother? This murderer is now a member of the family? Yes. If you are a repentant convert, do you know that you are welcome as a member of our family? Not just accepted, not just tolerated, but we love one another and we serve one another and you are welcome in this family. <laughs> that leads to this question. Does our church welcome repentant converts as members of our family? Is that something that we're willing to do? Is that something that we're able to do? I mean, imagine a murderer and persecutor of the church truly repents. Would we welcome them in our midst? I think we'd have a hard time. Because we have held people who have done much less at arm's length. Oh, that we would have the welcoming heart of God. So Christian community should welcome Christian converts. That should be something we, we all have a past. We all think, have things that happen. So Christian community should welcome Christian converts. One other thing I want to say about this. Yes, Christian community should welcome Christian converts. But I want you to know that Christian converts should join Christian community. Do you see that in the text? Verse 19, Paul spends time with the believers there. In verse 20, he's going to the synagogues with them. You know, and the reason I think this point is important is because I talk to a lot of people who say, okay, yeah, I like Jesus, I am open to Christianity, but I don't really like the church very much. You know, I want Jesus, but I don't want the church. People say that to me. And typically the first thing I say to them is, amen, I know how you feel. I really like Jesus a lot of days, and I don't really like the church a lot of days too. You know, I have the scars to prove it, right? And so, yes, we can say that sometimes. We can, we can empathize with people. But listen, we don't come to Christ and then it's just Jesus and me. That, that is not that sort of individualistic frame of mind is not what the scripture talks about when we come to Christ, when we're really converted. In fact, there's a word that the Bible uses of people who are Christian converts. You know what it says about us? There's this word that's used over and over again, together. <laughs> I want to be with Jesus, but I don't want to be with him. Well, if he's a convert, you are together, right? Over and over again. 1 Corinthians 12 says we were put together in the same body with Jesus as our head. Ephesians 2 says we're, born, we're joined together. That we're built together. Ephesians 3 says we're heirs together. We're members together. We're sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. Ephesians 4 says we're held together. Colossians 2 twice says we are knit together. Over and over the emphasis in the scripture is that when we come to Christ... We are together because when we come into a relationship with Jesus, we also come into a relationship with other brothers and sisters who are in a relationship with Jesus. We're not just connected to Jesus, but we're now connected to one another and will be for all eternity. 
And we see a great picture of that. We experience that as we come to the table together today. Listen, conversion is necessary. We can talk about what that has to look like. It doesn't have to be like Saul and all the details, but there does have to be a relationship with the risen Christ, whereby he is allowed to cross our will and tell us that we are wrong about things, that he is able to rule over our hearts. And we can have great hope as Christians that God can and does change people that would surprise us. And we can have great hope that as we come to Jesus, we are connected to him in a real but spiritual way that there are so many benefits of. And it means we're connected to one another. Let's pray. And ask Jesus to help us see the importance of those things, to appreciate them, to live them out, to flesh them out in this place for his glory and for our good. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are at work in your people, that you change even the hardest heart. I pray that that would give us great hope, not arrogance or pride, but it would give us a a confident assurance that if you were for us, there's no one who can be against us. Father, I pray that you would be at work in our hearts and you would help us to feel connected to you just as we surely are connected to you when we're converted to Christ. And I pray that you would connect us to one another in a way that we don't fully understand, that people would look at the, at the folks you have gathered here and say, how are those people connected to one another in a family? So that we can say, can I tell you about Jesus? It is in his name that we pray. Amen.